the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today we'll share a conversation with Amy Hollingsworth, author of The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. He's in the neighborhood today. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the Portland metro area is in the midst of another hot spell this week. Temperatures are likely to reach close to 100 degrees on Wednesday and possibly Thursday as well. I thought my heavy days of watering were over, but not so much. The Rose City hit 90 degrees on Monday, likely to hit that again today. In fact, Sam, can you tell me what the... What the temp is right about now, the upcoming round of uh, heat weather will peak on Wednesday with high temperatures close to 100 degrees. There's a slight chance of a thunderstorm in the Cascades tomorrow night and any cloud cover could take the uh, edge off the high heat on Thursday. That's according to our friends at KGW. What's the current temp? 88 degrees right now. Well, there you go. The National Weather Service uh, has issued a heat advisory for most of western Oregon and southwest Washington from noon Wednesday through 10 p.m. on Thursday. Well, after a slow start, Portland has a has had a pretty warm summer so far. Total temperatures have been above average for June, July, and through the first half of August. We're already notching 18 days of 90-degree or hotter weather here in the Portland area. We're knocking on the door of the top five summers in terms of heat in that category. Well, according to weather records, the 30-year average for 90-degree days at Portland International Airport is 15. We've reached 18 already. PDX has already had four 100-degree days so far this summer. Last year, Portland hit a record of five 100-degree days in the summer, uh, which also happened back in 1941 and 1977. So it's not unprecedented. This week's hot spell will likely not be the last of the summer. The latest outlook from the uh, Climate Prediction Center shows that temperatures over the next month should stay above average. How average? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. By the way, the uh, cooling centers that are made available are open on days like this or the days that are coming. The city of Beaverton will open their after-hours cooling center at its main library from 6 to 9 on Wednesday and Thursday. And you can dial 211 for the Portland metro area to find out other areas if you notice someone needs uh, that kind of relief. So do make note. Well, in other news, a U.S. magistrate judge, Bruce Reinhardt, is scheduled for an in-person hearing on Thursday in Florida regarding the unsealing of FBI records related to the last week's raid on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Uh, The hearing is set to be held on the 18th in the West Palm Beach Division. The judge will discuss with the government and Trump's legal team. And by the way, the former president will not be there. The motion to unseal the search warrant materials and attachments, the affidavit for the search warrant likely is included in that material. Media organizations are asking Reinhardt, the judge, to unseal the affidavit despite objections by the Department of Justice. 
the judge has not ruled on the matter yet. Well, Justice Department prosecutors have asked the judge to keep the the affidavit sealed to uh, protect the integrity of an ongoing law enforcement investigation that implicates national security. Hmm. Well, the judge would know more precisely what they're referring to. Disclosure at this juncture, the department went on to say, uh, supporting a pro- the of the affidavit supporting probable cause would, by contrast, cause significant and irreparable damage to this ongoing criminal investigation. The Justice Department said in its motion, noting that the affidavit includes critically important and detailed investigative facts, such as highly sensitive information about witnesses, including witnesses interviewed by the government, specific investigative techniques and information required by law to be kept under seal pursuant to federal rule of criminal procedure. Now, it's interesting, violating the Presidential Paper Act, whatever it's called, is not a criminal uh, is not a criminal law. Uh, so it's rather interesting that this is a criminal investigation, the, the dispute between the archives and the uh, the former president. So this many are interpreting as meaning we're talking about a different investigation altogether. And it's more related to January 6th than it is this particular set of issues. If disclosed, they went on to say, the affidavit would serve as a roadmap for the government's ongoing investigation, providing specific details about its direction and likely course in a matter that is highly likely to compromise future investigative steps. Again, that's from the Justice Department. They continue. In addition, information about witnesses is um, uh, a part of the information. I have it sort of blacked out here. Um, they say that the uh, the risk that the revelation of witnesses identities would impact their willingness to cooperate with the investigation. So this, again, sounds like a whole lot more than just papers being in the wrong place at the wrong time and the uh, the former president uh, failing to cooperate, which they have disputed with uh, directive to return the documents uh, timely. So anyway, that's what uh, the judge is going to hear on Thursday. My guess is the judge will not. Uh, make the affidavit public for reasons the Justice Department have said. But having access to all of the information, the judge would be in a better position to determine if what the Justice Department is saying and uh, suggest is ominous is, in fact, true or something of an overstatement. So uh, my guess is we're not going to be satisfied at the end, but we'll find out what the judge decides on Thursday. Meanwhile, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law on Thursday, saying the American people won and the special interests lost. While opponents, of course, would dispute that characterization. But with the new legislation, he touted the Democratic support while slamming Republicans for not backing the bill. It's a sort of build back better light. Well, the president returned to the White House after a week long vacation. In South Carolina, he was joined by House Minority Whip Jim Clyburn, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer during an event in the state dining room uh, at the White House. With this law, the American people won and special interests did not, he said. This administration began amid a dark time in America, the once in a century pandemic, devastating joblessness, clear and present threats to democracy and the rule of law, doubts about America's future itself. And yet we've not wavered. We've not flinched. And where we've not given in. The president said instead the law will deliver results for the American people. The bill, which was passed by the Senate earlier this month and the House um, last week, costs an estimated $437 billion, with $369 billion going toward investment in energy security and climate change, according to the summary of the uh, Senate bill by the, the uh, Democrats. 
Um, Vice President Kamala Harris cast the tie-breaking vote to allow the legislation to uh, pass 51 to 50 in the Senate, and the House passed the legislation a few days later. We'll review the contents and what it will and will not do at some future point, but I'll leave it at that, that the uh, president signed the bill, the billion-dollar Inflation Reduction Act. We'll talk about whether or not it actually reduces or has any impact on inflation at all at a future point. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the program, we'll hear from Amy Hollingsworth, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. It's really quite an amazing story behind the story. Well, President Biden is set to sign the... um, well, he's actually already done that. Let me see if I've move on. Well, Customs and Border Protection made nearly 200,000 migrant encounters in July. That's according to figures obtained by Fox News Digital, suggesting a still ongoing migrant crisis, despite the slight dip in the already high numbers being encountered. There were 199,976 migrant encounters, each one an individual with some sort of backstory that brought them to the U.S. border. That was in July. Well, that's lower than the 213,593 encountered in July of last year. Well, a slight decrease from 2007, 416 encountered in June of this year and the lowered numbers uh, encountered since February. But the almost 200,000 encounter still represents a stubbornly high number of migrants hitting the border and a continuing border crisis that's overwhelmed agents and border communities and dogged the administration, although you wouldn't know it. Two-thirds of all migrants encountered were single adults, with 134,662 encounters in July, but just 74,000 encounters resulted in an expulsion under Title 42 Public Health Order, an order put in place during the previous administration and that the Biden administration sought to abolish, but has so far been blocked by the court order. So those numbers would be significantly higher had the judge not said, no, this must remain in place, at least for now. Well, this relatively low number of removals is in part due to the increase in migrants coming from countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba, which are not subject to Title 42 due to the Mexican government's refusal to take them. Republicans have sought to blame the Biden administration for the crisis at the border. They point to the rollback of the Trump era policies that include border wall construction and the migrant protection protocols. The administration recently said that it would be ending the program known as the Remain in Mexico policy that kept migrants in Mexico for their immigration hearings rather than releasing them into the country after the Supreme Court ruled in its favor. However, the administration has also suffered defeats in court and they're currently being blocked from enforcing enforcing the narrowed immigration and customs enforcement deportation and arrest priorities. Well, the administration, meanwhile, has pointed to the regional nature of the crises and has sought to tackle root causes like poverty and corruption in Central America. At least that's what the vice president was assigned to do. I'm not sure I've seen any action on her part in that regard. But the administration has recently sought to slash asylum processing times with a new rule. And they've uh, touted new immigration commitments after the Summit of the Americas, which has included a new crackdown on the smuggling industry, resulting in more than 3,000 arrests in just three months. 
However, it also recently gave the green light to projects to fill in gaps in the border wall in Yuma, Arizona. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas recently claimed that the border is secure, a claim that brought pushback from the officials at the border and Republican lawmakers. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, he recently said that the border presents significant security issues when asked about Mayorkas's remarks. Well, the ongoing crisis has recently sparked a feud between the Republican border states of Texas and Arizona and the Democratic-run cities of New York and Washington, D.C. They are sanctuary cities until they're actually called upon to provide sanctuary for large numbers. The states have been um, busing thousands of migrants to cities, uh, sparking pushback and cries for federal aid from the city's mayors. Now, the uh, the thinking is if we on the border can't get the president's attention, perhaps his buddies in New York and Washington, D.C. can. They're critical of um, uh, of Texas and Arizona for busing migrants to them, but perhaps have a clearer understanding of the significant challenge that they face as a border state without the federal assistance they so desperately need. Well, Texas Governor Abbott uh, has said voters in Texas are fed up with the chaos at the border under the Biden administration, and that is exactly why we're sending these migrants to places like Washington, D.C. and New York that may in fact um, the leaders there may, in fact, have the ear of the president. Well, the White House official said that the White House has been in regular contact with Mayor Adams and his team and are committed to working with them as we do effectively with other local leaders through FEMA funding and other support. As we have always said, there is a process in place for managing migration flows and Republican governors should stop meddling in that process and using desperate migrants as political tools, the official said. In other words... Tone deaf. Well, a new report released by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection shows that Border Patrol agents apprehended 10 people on a U.S. terror list um, this month, uh, the month of July. The report detailed CBP enforcement statistics for fiscal year 2022, highlighted a number of details, including more than 1.8 million total Border Patrol encounters. Those encounters included the apprehension of a total of 66 people who are on the terrorist screening database. Now, those are those who have have been apprehended. But among those who enter the country without the encounters that the Border Patrol is charged with, uh, that number could be significantly higher. Encounters on watch listed individuals at our borders are very uncommon, underscoring the critical work of CBP agents and officers carry out every day on the front lines, the report said. Although statistics show that these encounters have been far more common this year than in years past. The 66 people caught at the border in fiscal year 22 is more than twice the number from the previous five years combined. In 2017, encounters with people on the terror watch list truly were rare, uh, as they numbered just two That number jumped to six in fiscal year 2018, but then went down to three in 2019 and 2020. Fiscal year 2021 saw a significant uptick as there were 15 such encounters that year. The sharp rise in apprehensions of terror suspects coincides with a significant rise in overall border encounters. Um, They've already seen a million eight hundred twenty two thousand encounters through July with two months left in the fiscal year. This is more than uh, 2021's total, which itself was more than four times 2022's um, levels.
Meanwhile, seizures rather of the deadly drug fentanyl jumped over 200 percent in the month of July, according to government figures released on Monday. Amid a uh, continuing border crisis and widespread concern over overdose uh, deaths, um, over 2,100 pounds of the drug, which can be fatal in small doses, were seized in July. That's the highest amount seized at a time, uh, at least uh, the last four fiscal years. The largest seizures before July was in April, with 1,300 pounds seized. The 2,100 pounds seized in July is up 202 percent from uh, previous Uh, numbers in June. The synthetic opioid is typically used for treating severe pain and is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Illicit fentanyl is now primarily made in Mexico from uh, precursors manufactured in China and then trafficked across the southern land border. It's frequently cut into other drugs, meaning that users may not uh, be aware that they're ingesting the potent substance. And while the increased seizures show that More of the drug is being caught by border officials, particularly at ports of entry. It has raised fears that, like illegal migrants, more may be uh, getting past the border. Traffic increases undetected. I had a conversation with my 17-year-old niece. She celebrated her birthday earlier this year. She doesn't drink. She doesn't take drugs. But I, I told her she was completely unaware of the fentanyl threat. Don't take an aspirin. Don't take an Advil unless you can see... Uh, clearly, it's it's from someone that you can trust and you know precisely what it is and had to have that conversation about what's uh, what's happening. And it was painful to shatter her um, her blissful ignorance on the subject. But lots of young people find themselves taking something they think is something else only uh, to learn too late that it was fatal in any event, fentanyl making its way across the southern border. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll continue our walk through um, some of the headline news stories of the day. We'll also share an interview with Amy Hollingsworth, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, interest in transparency, President Trump calls for the immediate release of the completely unredacted affidavit after the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago and a judge is complying, at least has agreed to consider the prospect on the Green Gang. Unsurprisingly, John Kerry's climate office is rife with ties to far left environmental groups. No really surprise there on a soaring prices or on soaring prices. The nation's biggest retailer is a top U.S. inflation gauge. The things uh, may get worse. Walmart is a top U.S. inflation gauge and the CEO, Doug McMillan, he warned last uh, last quarter that inflation may get worse. Is it too soon to celebrate better than expected inflation data? Well, as the nation's uh, biggest retailer and employer, Walmart is considered one of the best inflation gauges out there and investors will be paying close attention when the company's second quarter earnings for its 2023 fiscal year are released. Well, the CEO warned last quarter the price increases may get worse, saying in May that on the food side, we're seeing double digit inflation. And I'm concerned that that inflation may continue to increase. So keep your eyes on Walmart if you want to see what's going to happen next. Calling it a ticking time bomb, a Los Angeles uh, deputy DA blasted George Gascon for releasing uh, murderers back into the streets. And of course, Gascon has survived the challenge to his position and his office. Literal Middle Ages, the Army Week um, Association COO writes, 
One year after the U.S. left Afghanistan, we're still working to rescue the heroes and friends we left behind. Liz Cheney and Lisa Murkowski are facing voters in today's primary elections. There are others on that list as well. If time permits, we'll talk about some of that. And on the state of the nation, Americans are unhappy with the way things are in the U.S. right now. And they agree that political divisiveness is a serious concern. Three quarters of registered voters are dissatisfied with America's direction. A nearly 25 point increase from April of last year, according to a recent poll. And Twitter rolled out a new civic integrity policy just in time for the midterms. Time to hit that conservative censorship button again. That was essentially the message behind Twitter's announcement on Thursday last week that it would reinstate its speech squelching thought police program, otherwise known as the civic integrity policy. Initiated in 2018, Twitter justified its speech censorship as a means to elevate credible information and help keep you safe on Twitter. Twitter further explained the mission of the civic integrity work is to protect the conversation on Twitter during elections or other civic processes. In other words, like Twitter did in 2020 and suspending accounts that attempted to highlight the genuine news on the Biden family's corruption revealed by Hunter Biden's infamous laptop, which was denied by media heads at the time. The social media platform is once again jumping to action to help one side of the political continuum and hurt the other, just as the midterm campaigns ramp up. Of course, Twitter asserts that it is acting fairly and seeks to avoid bias in its speech censorship enforcement by using external data and internal country-based metrics to assess the potential for online or offline harm and the potential for false or misleading information about civic processes and human rights concerns, end quote. So feel free to say only that which Twitter wants you to say. Sounds more like the People's Republic of China than the First Amendment bearing U.S. Well, the IRS has deleted a job posting seeking applicants willing to use deadly force. And read my lips. The Biden administration is being panned for its no new audits pledge. House incumbents are on track to see the most primary losses in decades. And remember how the U.K. just shut down its official pediatric trans clinic? Well, now 1000 families there are suing that clinic over the harm it did to their kids. Pediatricians are privately slamming the American Academy of Pediatrics for pushing puberty blockers to teens. Well, they're calling it the sacrifice zone. Myanmar, it bears much of the cost of the so-called green energy that we are um, supposed to embrace. Well, this forest is the source of several key metallic elements known as rare earths often called the vitamins of the modern world. Rare earths now reach into the lives of almost everyone on the planet, turning up in everything from hard drives and cell phones to elevators and trains. They're especially vital to the fast-growing field of green energy, feeding wind turbines and electric car engines. And they end up in the supply chains of some of the most prominent companies in the world, including General Motors, Volkswagen, Mercedes, Tesla, and Apple. But an AP investigation has found that their universal use hides a dirty open secret in the industry. Their cost is environmental destruction, the theft of land from villagers and the funneling of money to brutal militias, including at least one linked to Myanmar's secretive military government. As demand soars for rare earths along with green energy, the abuse is likely to grow as well. But I suppose that doesn't really matter. 
Tax evasion, there's an investigation. The Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg is considering a plea deal as part of the Manhattan DA pro- uh, probe and calling taxpayer concern a load of malarkey. CNN, MSNBC and Democrats are mocking criticism of adding 87,000 IRS agents in the spending bill. Citing a new threat, The Atlantic published an article mocking the right over concerns about a violent pro-abortion group. Apparently, if you are pro-life, it doesn't matter if the pro-abortion group is violent. Urging talk like normal people, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee head Maloney said Democrats have a likability problem and need to sound less like MSNBC's Chris Hayes. By the way, that's a quote. I think the problem is deeper than that, but you might start there. Marking a stark contrast, a Washington Post columnist declared this is the month President Biden finally came into his own. Defund to refund. San Francisco defunded the police before reversing course the next year amid calls for accountability. The recall of Gascon, well, that effort has fallen short. There were um, not enough valid signatures to make the ballot. Now, the note is valid signatures. ABC reports that an effort to recall the Los Angeles County District Attorney from office has failed to collect enough valid signatures to be placed on the ballot. County officials said on Monday, the county's clerk, the county clerk's office said while organizers submitted more than 715,000 signatures to get the measure on the ballot, only 520,000 were found to be valid. The measure required 567,000 valid signatures to, pl- to be placed on the ballot. The county said more than 195,000 signatures were found to be invalid for reasons such as the person signing does not live in the county or uh, is not a registered voter. Almost 44,000 signatures were found to be duplicates. Andy No weighs in, saying the effort to recall Soros-linked Los Angeles DA George Gascon failed. Organizers submitted 520-plus Thousand petition signatures short of the 566,000 Los Angeles is experiencing a surge in homicides that some analysts attribute to the prosecutor's policies. And some are questioning the process to determine valid signatures. WNBA star Brittany Griner is appealing her conviction as the U.S.-Russia prisoner swap negotiations continue. As um, the legal team appeals a drug conviction in Russia, talks are reportedly heating up over a potential prisoner swap between Greiner and another Russian imprisoned American for a notorious Russian terrorist. Greiner this month was sentenced to nine and a half years behind bars for bringing cannabis infused vape cartridges into Russia. She admitted to the crime, but said she didn't deliberately break the law, telling the court I was in a rush packing and the cartridges accidentally ended up in my bag. The diplomat confirmed that Russian Victor Bout, described by the U.S. as one of the world's most prolific arms dealers, is a candidate for the prisoner swap with Greiner and Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine convicted in Moscow of espionage charges, when which Whelan denies. New York Times reports that Greiner's legal team has said that the appeal, which was expected, would most likely take up to three months to be adjudicated. Russian officials have said that all legal avenues must be exhausted before a potential exchange can be discussed. But over the weekend, Alexander, last name I won't attempt, a high-ranking Russian diplomat said that political negotiations with the United States were already underway, including discussion of Russian held uh, in the uh, by the United States, whose release Moscow seeks in order to secure Ms. Greiner's freedom. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue our march through some of the day's headlines. And we'll also share a conversation with Amy Hollingsworth, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, coming up in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, an agreement struck between a Minneapolis teachers union and Minneapolis public schools now compels the district in the case of any layoffs, which they don't anticipate at the moment, to get rid of white teachers before any teachers of color. The stipulation comes as part of the recent collective bargaining agreement between the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and MPS, which ended a two week long teacher strike. Well, among numerous provisions that were agreed upon between the two groups was the restructuring of the district's recruiting and retainment of educa- educators of, of color effective in the spring of 2023. Teachers will be subject to job layoffs or relocations in order of seniority. According to the agreement, the policies is to solve past discrimination by the district, which the agreement said disproportionately impacted the hiring and underrepresented teachers in the district as compared to relevant labor market and community and resulted in a lack of diversity. And my question is, what about the Equal Protection Act, the 14th Amendment, meritocracy? Apparently, it does not apply, but they did add other groups to make it more likely to pass muster in the courts. If you are LGBTQ, for example, you and happen to be white, then you're more likely to be retained from just a white bread and butter teacher who happens to be a senior member of the staff in this community. It will be challenged most likely in the courts. The Justice Department has asked a judge to keep the Mar-a-Lago raid affidavit sealed. And China is planning to conduct additional drills around Taiwan following an American delegation's visits. China announced more military drills around the small country, this small island, And a spokesperson threatened to take resolute and strong measures on Monday after a second American delegation set foot on the island on Sunday. This is weeks, of course, after Speaker Pelosi's visit. The delegation was led by Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey and included Democratic representatives John uh, uh, Jaramendi, Alan Lowenthal of California, Don Beyer of Virginia, Amua Amada Coleman, of uh, American Samoa, according to the American Institute of Taiwan. The trip was unannounced and the lawmakers are set to leave the island on Monday. China accused the U.S. of encouraging the island's independence through the sale of weapons and engagement between U.S. politicians and the island's government. Washington says it does not support independence, has no formal diplomatic ties with the uh, island and maintains that the two sides should settle their disputes peacefully. But it is legally bound to ensure the island can defend itself against any attack. The new exercises were intended to be resolute response and solemn deterrent against collusion and provocation between the U.S. and Taiwan, according to the Chinese Defense Ministry. Ford and GM, their price hike prices, well, they're equal to the Inflation Reduction Act tax credit. In other words, it's pretty much a wash. Ford and General Motors unveiled price increases for their electric vehicle lineups as the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes electric vehicle tax credits, is slated to become law. And 
today did. The price hikes are comparable to the $7,500 tax credit for the new electric vehicle included in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which currently uh, was signed today by the president. The legislation airmarks a total of $369 billion to combat the existential crisis of climate change, end quote, according to the remarks from the president. Ford is adjusting the MSRP for the F-150 Lightning for the first time since it was revealed in May of last year, and they've honored MSRP for all customers' orders to date. Due to significant material cost increases and other factors, Ford has adjusted MSRP starting with the uh, uh, the opening of the next wave of F-150 Lightning orders. So if you were planning on that tax credit, you probably will end up paying full price given that they have increased the prices. Boston Children's Hospital is promoting gender-affirming hysterectomies for minors. Hysterectomies for minors. Well, the viral, uh, the video rather, went viral. Backlash ensued. An April video posted to the Boston Children's Hospital YouTube channel features attending physicians um, in the Division of Gynecology detailing what she described as a gender-affirming hysterectomy, which the hospital is evidently open to performing on minors. Federalists weighs in, saying just this week, BCH scrubbed a video titled What Happens During a Gender-Affirming Hysterectomy after facing backlash for promoting the surgery for minors who can't consent and do not have the mental capacity to make such a life-altering decision and uh, understand the implications as they age. Well, the video from the Boston Children's Hospital features the doctor describing the procedure. Uh, In the background, Charlie Kirk says, so this is the Boston Children's Hospital now proclaiming and bragging that they will have become the nation's first pediatric trans surgery center. This is irreversible damage that is being done to a generation of young people that will never be able to undo this. I just uh, sorted through a series of a collection of articles that I have uh, for families and individuals who have had surgery as children who have come to regret it, and lawsuits abound. Friendly foes, Russia and North Korea, are getting cozier, while relations with the West are cooling. President Vladimir Putin and North Korea's Kim Jong-un pledged closer ties in an exchange of notes on Monday, state-controlled media outlets reported. It came as Russia continued the uh, months-long push to shore up alliances with non-Western countries in the wake of its invasion of Ukraine. Putin wished Kim good health and success and expressed the will to continue their bilateral relations, which would entirely conform with the interests of the people of the two countries. An Atlantic contributor attacked the Catholic Holy Rosary, calling it an extremist symbol. Now, the Atlantic, of course, is the publication. The contributor, Daniel Pattenton, declared that the Catholic Rosary has become a symbol of religious radicalism. I thought radicalism was supposed to be good. The rosary is a string of beads or knots used by Catholics as they pray in sequence of prayers. But one writer warned they have taken on a far darker meaning in modern times. Now, this would probably be a surprise to many Catholics. Just as the AR-15 rifle has become a sacred object for Christian nationalists in general. Again, this phrase, which is supposed to um, inspire Christians to just back out of the public square, Christian nationalists. What is that even supposed to mean? The rosary has acquired a militaristic meaning for radical traditional Catholics, uh, he claimed in the Sunday piece titled How the Rosary Became an Extremist Symbol. The almost certainly inadvertent timing of the Atlantic's attack on the Holy Rosary on the Feast of the Assumption speaks volumes about both the Atlantic and the rosary. National Review says, in addition to downplaying uh, Jane's uh, rev- uh, downplaying, let me find my place here. Um, 
Jane's revenge and its campaign of terror, the Atlantic fails to contextualize it by omitting the activities of Ruth Sentas, the group that published the home addresses of Supreme Court justices to direct protesters to their homes, as well as the assassination attempt on Justice Brett Kavanaugh by a pro-abortion fanatic. Anyway, the timing and the content, very telling. Liz Cheney is facing an uphill battle in the Wyoming primary, which takes place today. In Wyoming, the vice chair of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, the lawmaker faces an effort by Donald Trump to punish her for disloyalty in the form of Harriet Hagman, her former staffer and current top rival. Ms. Cheney is deep underwater in the polls and could lose by more than 20 points by some indications. When uh, President Trump was in office, she voted along with him more than 90 percent of the time. How the mighty have fallen on the high cost of inflation on Americans. A recent analysis from the Joint Committee Economic Committee. uh, Republicans found that 40 year inflation is costing the average American seven hundred and seventeen dollars a month. Thanks to inflation hovering at 8.5% annually, the cost of everything has risen, and as a result, Americans are finding themselves poorer. The JEC uh, report notes that while prices do not change from June to uh, uh, July 2022, prices increased 13.3% from January of last year to July of this. That sustained inflation rate is now costing the average American uh, family $8,600 annually. And despite rising wages, inflation has risen faster, creating an average hourly wage decrease of 0.5%, even as energy costs have begun to decrease. Investor strategy Seema Shaw predicts that the inflation will only decline at a painfully slow pace amidst the current recession. There are now 14 FBI whistleblowers, according to Representative Jim Jordan. He recently noted that 14 FBI agents have come to our office as whistleblowers reporting on the politicization of the agency. This growing number uh, is concerning as it indicates that problems are widespread throughout the bureau. These whistleblowers allege that the agency is actively engaging in an effort to purge FBI employees who hold conservative viewpoints. Jordan emphasized that there are lots of good people in the FBI and that it's the top that's the problem. As the left has done with many of America's institutions, he went on to say only certain ideological views will be permitted. And it appears a similar effort is underway at the FBI. Uh, Specifics, apparently, um, one might expect to hear about at some point in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And when we return, we'll hear from Amy Hollingsworth. She's the author of The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. And a judge has declared a bee a fish to get endangered status. One branch usurping the authority of another. We'll tell you more about it in the second hour. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. James Glenn producing Sam Maupin right across the glass engineering today's program. By the way, Fish Fest is coming up this weekend. It's Saturday the 20th. All the important details are at kpdq.com. Check them out. It's going to be the greatest concert of the of the season. We'll, we'll do that. Great outdoor concert. Anyway, kpdq.com. Also want to let you know that you can travel with Alistair Begg on the Deeper Faith Mediterranean Cruise next summer. Now, I've traveled 
with Alistair Begg. And I'm telling you, it's a great way to go. You can plan the trip of a lifetime, a Mediterranean cruise on the Norwegian Cruise Line with your host, Pastor Alistair Begg. Explore this spectacular part of the world where the early church began to grow and where the Apostle Paul made many of his missionary journeys. Enjoy Christian fellowship, friendship and ministry with Alistair Begg, world-class dining and accommodation, an itinerary filled with magnificent churches, cathedrals, strolling old world cobblestone streets, touring 16th century mansions, fortresses, and museums. You can book your tickets and come along on this exciting voyage um, across the scenic Mediterranean Sea. That's next summer, August 26th through September 4th of 2023. All the important details at kpdq.com. It's a great trip. Let me encourage you to check it out. Well, back to the headlines, Alec Baldwin pulled a trigger by accident. Well, on Monday, the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the movie production set last October by Alec Baldwin was determined to be accidental by the New Mexico medical investigator. So far, no charges have been filed. The FBI's recent analysis of the weapon concluded that the 45 revolver could not have been fired without the trigger having been pulled challenging Baldwin's claim that he never pulled the trigger. His attorney asserted that this was the third investigation done by New Mexico authorities that found the actor had no authority or knowledge of the allegedly unsafe conditions on the set. The medical investigator cited the absence of obvious intent to cause harm or death, as well as no compelling demonstration that the firearm was intentionally loaded with live ammunition for the conclusion reached. The more salient question as to whether Baldwin acted negligently remains unanswered and if he'll be held liable financially. The Department of Justice has offered former President Trump his passport back and the southern border saw nearly 200,000 migrant encounters in July as the border crisis rolls on. The New York Times asked the Communist Chinese Party aligned TikTok to censor Americans. Hmm. The summer's Um, This summer, rather, students aren't the only ones dreading going back to the classroom. According to staggering enrollment data, parents appear to have had a case of back to school blues over public education since COVID-19's onset two years ago. In the past two years, a mass exodus of over 1.2 million students have left the public school system as parents seek alternative education routes such as public charter schools, private schools and homeschooling. Apparently now hip to be homeschooled. It's happening. LGB drop the T keeps trending on Twitter as gay activists are turning on the transgender activist. Hmm. First lady uh, Jill Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. Please keep her in your prayers. 1777 on this day in history, the Revolutionary War Battle of Bennington, Vermont is won by Continental Army forces. 1858, a telegraphed message from Britain's Queen Victoria to President James Buchanan is transmitted over the recently laid transatlantic cable. 1948, Babe Ruth dies of cancer at the age of 53. 1962, the Beatles fire their original drummer Pete Best, replacing him with Ringo Starr. Okay, it doesn't really matter all that much, but it's kind of interesting. 1977, Elvis Presley dies at his Graceland estate in Memphis, Tennessee at age 42. He told... uh, Close associates, he wasn't going to live much longer. 1991, Pope John Paul II begins the first ever papal visit to Hungary. 1999, the U.S. version of the quiz show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, hosted by Regis Philbin, begins a limited two-week run on ABC. 
2000, delegates to the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles formally nominate Al Gore for president. 2009, Usain Bolt. He breaks another world record, winning the 100-meter race and 9.58 seconds at the World Championships in Berlin. 2012, Ecuador grants political asylum to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. 2018, Aretha Franklin, the so-called Queen of Soul, dies of pancreatic cancer at age 76. 2019, actor and director Peter Fonda, best known for his role in Easy Rider, he dies from respiratory failure due to lung cancer. Begs the question, are you prepared for that part of life, the end? Well, a student identification card sounds relatively innocuous, like something that could come from hand, uh, come in handy for a field trip, emergency drill, or cafeteria hour. Such a card seems unlike to, unlikely to uh, serve a purpose in promoting anything else, indoctrination or deceiving parents. And yet, that's exactly what is now being used for um, a uh, community-based site. Well, this particular student ID card is available from um, charmylesson.com. Uh, that's created and maintained by the American Federation of Teachers. The resource appears to be developed by the site's identity-affirming classroom team and is uh, classified as social-emotional learning. According to the Share My Lesson, this card is a resource recommended for all grade levels. The card provides students with space to write their government name, their government name, and then a space for the name you would like to be called in class. Now, below that space is a um, any pronoun uh, pronunciation tips. If the uh, the cards uh, stop there, it might not be so bad. Government name is a bit of an odd choice compared to full name or given name, but it still describes what should be written in the blank. The next blank could help teachers remember widely um, used nicknames such as Katie instead of Catherine and, and so on. Um, but that's, of course, not the, the primary concern here. Students who go by their middle names or students who have select English names instead of hard to pronounce foreign names. Pronunciation tips could also help with names with unusual or ambiguous spelling, particularly foreign names. But that's where the card gets a bit strange. Can I call you this name outside of class? It asks, giving the students the option to indicate yes or no. That's a strangely irrelevant question to squeeze onto a small ID card. If that's the name the student goes by, then what does it matter where they are? Do students use special names in class that they don't use elsewhere around their family, for example? Is the name a student uses in class a secret name from that student's family? Who cares if Johnny's family knows he prefers Jack? Of course, if Johnny prefers to go by Susie, then the change of name would carry much more significance. A rose by any other name might smell as sweet, but a person's name communicates much more than his or her identity. Well, not least of the important characteristics communicated by a name in most instances, apologies to Jordans, Taylors, Rileys of the world, is the person's sex, which for all of human history has bifurcated mankind into two distinct but complementary groups. Well, this distinction between the sexes is clear in pronouns, too. Yet the card goes on to provide space for the student's pronouns. A simple circle around M or F should be sufficient, and it cites um, as just some examples, he, him, they, them, she, her. Well, the pronoun section of the card occupies as much space as the name section and includes even more qualifications on their use. In fact, due to its um, 
prominence, this ID card may as well be called a pronoun card. The student can indicate yes or no to these questions. May I use these pronouns in front of the class? May I use these pronouns when I contact home? May I use these pronouns in front of other teachers? Would you like to follow up with me about your name or pronouns? For students who identify by standard pronouns as they uh, uh, standard genders, these questions become unnecessary, but they are uh, now being imposed um, in classrooms around the country as a resource to help identify them as something other than what mom and dad uh, may know about. Meanwhile, in Oregon, there's a school that's debuting a gender-affirming closet. And while we don't have time to go into that now, we'll follow up on that and much more that's happening in education these days as kids around the country are returning to school. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Amy Hollingsworth, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, he had a calming voice with a slow, deliberate cadence, a smiling face and gentle eyes. He was kind. This is the Mr. Rogers that we knew on the set of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But when the camera stopped rolling and the music faded, who was the real man behind one of America's most iconic children's programs? Well, written by a close, longtime friend of Fred Rogers, the simple faith of Mr. Rogers reveals the driving faith behind the creator of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Fred Rogers, he captured the hearts of millions of children and adults alike in his over 900 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that aired from 1968 to 2001. He was known for his routine of beginning the show by entering the set and changing from his suit jacket into his signature cardigan sweater while singing It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Well, the upcoming feature film starring Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, highlights the character of Fred Rogers behind the scenes and his relationship with a magazine reporter who reluctantly agrees to do an assigned story for him. But what's missing is the true look at the motivation behind Fred's passion for the loving treatment of every neighbor. Well, in the simple faith of Mr. Rogers, my next guest reveals the inner workings of Fred Rogers' faith, including his perspective on prayer, the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of forgiveness, and eternal life. It offers exclusive content and the faith that helped establish and maintain the wonderful person Fred Rogers was. It includes personal letters between Rogers and my next guest, uh, the spiritual legacy left behind by the man who can be summed up by one of his favorite quotations from St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Well, my guest is Amy Hollingsworth. She is the author of the best-selling The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, which last summer earned a spot on the Wall Street Journal's bestsellers list and was ranked as Amazon's number one bestseller in Christian inspiration. Amy is the first person to ever interview Mr. Rogers about his faith on television. A Mr. Rogers neighborhood cast member called her the daughter he would have wanted. Amy is also the author of Runaway Radical, co-written with her son, Jonathan, and Gifts of Passage. She's been named one of USA Today's top 100 people for her influence on pop culture. A former psychology professor, Amy is the mother mother rather of two grown children, both writers, lives in Fredericksburg, Virginia, with her husband, Jeff, and joins us today to talk about her longtime friend, 
Mr. Rogers. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk about Mr. Rogers. Well, let's talk about how you first came to know him, because uh, it was something of a surprise to both of you. As I mentioned, you were the first uh, person to do a television interview about his faith. Uh, And the both of you, I think, were a little apprehensive at the beginning, but uh, you (laughs) developed a fast friendship. Tell us a bit about it. Well, it's, I, I was working in Christian television at the time, and I really, I, I didn't really grow up with Mr. Rogers. You know, I was sort of out of that demographic when his show began to air nationally, but I really discovered him for the first time through the eyes of my two-year-old son, who was a whirlwind of a toddler, but he would sit very quietly and listen to every word Mr. Rogers had to say. So I started listening to every word Mr. Rogers had to say, and I was amazed at at. at the depth of his program, the, his insight into children, everything about him surprised me. And so I had this idea to go interview him. And the network that I was working for said, oh, go, you know, good luck. You know, we've been trying for 20 years and he's always turned us down. So I wrote a letter and asked for the interview and didn't hear back and didn't hear back. And then one night I was just sitting at the kitchen table and I opened the day's newspaper and there was an op-ed piece called it's a psychobabble day in the neighborhood. And it was written by Don Fetter, who at that time was with the Boston Globe, and it was this terrible, scathing opinion piece about how Mr. Rogers was this horrible person, he was destroying children, and, you know, it was just awful. So I, at that point, I had done enough research on Mr. Rogers that I, I knew enough to defend him. So I just got pen and paper, and I wrote Don Fetter a letter, and I was, you know, told him all the reasons why he was wrong, and at the end I said, you know, shame on you for, you know, attacking the one person who's trying to do something positive for my children. And so I sent that to Don Fetter. I, I don't know if he ever read it. And I also sent a copy of, of the op-ed piece in my letter to Mr. Rogers' people because I thought, well, they should know that the bad press is out there. So a couple of days later, I got the phone call and that he had agreed to do the interview. And it wasn't until I got to Pittsburgh that I found out that it was the letter that had convinced him that I was sincere enough to be trusted that I wasn't just another journalist after a rare interview with Mr. Rogers, but I was a mother who was trying to do something positive for her children. And I think, I think the trust that, that informed the rest of our long friendship began uh, when he read that letter in def- that I wrote in defense of him. Well, that had to have been thrilling to, um, to have met him face to face and to give the rest of the world an opportunity to learn more about the man behind the character, which wasn't much of a departure uh, that we came to know as Mr. Rogers in his neighborhood. Now, let me ask you a little bit about who Mr. Rogers was before he became the famed character that is now so beloved and uh, who about whom a, a, a movie is going to be released here very mm-hmm. shortly. A television wasn't his first uh, his first calling. Young Fred Rogers had other plans, as did his parents. Tell us a little bit about young Fred Rogers and how his uh, connection with television began. Well, he... He um, he was planning to go. He went to college for music, um, but he had planned to go to seminary, and that was his intention and his parents' intention for him. But during spring break, his senior year of college, he was home visiting, and he saw television for the first time. And it it wasn't that he saw it and thought, "Wow, this is this is going to change the entire world of communications." What what he saw on television was 
one person was was uh, people throwing pies in each other's faces and and he he was appalled by that and he said if you know he this is what he told me he said i got into television because i saw people throwing pies in, e- in each other's faces and he said that to me is such demeaning behavior and if there's one thing that makes me mad it's one person demeaning another that really makes me mad and so here you have the man who sang the song you know what do you do with the mad that you feel he took his own mad and decided to go into television so he went into television he worked for some shows in new york city and then eventually um had the children's children's corner excuse me in pittsburgh where he just worked behind the scenes with the puppets yeah, he was a, a, quite a puppeteer, which if you uh, saw the program, featured large in his um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yes, he he, wa- he did do that. And what happened was he um, uh, the head of uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company had seen him interact with children and offered him a daily program called Mr. Rogers in Canada. And Fred had assumed, you know, I'm just going to be a puppeteer. I'm going to be behind the scenes. And, and the, the head of the broadcasting company said, oh, no, I've seen you interact with children. What I want is a daily visit. I want you to be on screen, and I want you to communicate with a child on the other side of the television set the way I've seen you interact with real children. And that's how Mr. Rogers came to be. So it's called Mr. Rogers in Canada, and eventually it moved to Pittsburgh and was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, when you spoke with him, was he astonished by the the degree of success that he had um, enjoyed over the the span of his career? You know, I don't think uh, I don't think he thought of it as success. There's a um, I have had the privilege of seeing the new film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which opens on Friday with Tom Hanks. And, 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 and a reporter asked him that question, and, and he said, you know, fame is a four-letter word. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're famous. It matters what you do with it. And so the reporter says, well, what are you trying to do with it? He said, I'm trying to give parents and their children positive ways to express how they feel. And so he didn't see it as fame or success, but as his ministry to help children and their parents find ways to express how they feel, but in ways that didn't hurt them or anyone else. In your book that we're talking about today, The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor, um, you uh, divide the book in in various chapters, and each one of them begins with uh, the phrase, toast sticks for the heart, toast sticks for the eyes, toast sticks for the hands. Explain what that phrase means uh, <laughs> to Mr. Rogers. I know, it's unusual, isn't it? Well, you know, it's it's funny because the, the summer before um, Fred passed away, he told me the story about uh, from his own life when he was five. And he had a, a neighbor um, in his neighborhood whose name everybody called her Mama Bell. So Fred used to show up on her back doorstep because that it was strategic because that led, you know, straight into the kitchen. And when he would visit Mama Bell, she would make him toast sticks. And so one day she said, you know, would you, Freddie, would you like to make toast sticks on your own? And and he was so surprised, you know, so she let him put the toast in the toaster and um, slice, you know, slice them into sticks and put the jam on it. And, and it made him feel really good that she would, you know, trust him and show him how to do that. And then a short time later, she got very sick and died. 
And he wondered, you know, years later, you know, did she know that she was dying? And maybe that she had offered this experience to him as sort of a comfort to him. And then he would know how to make toast sticks after she was gone. And so I was, I was, I had just returned from his memorial service in Pittsburgh. And I was sitting on my back porch and I was thinking about that story. And I thought, you know, he left me toast sticks, Mm. but they're toast sticks of a spiritual kind. So through his letters, through our visits, through his phone calls, um, through the sermons he sent me and and speeches and, uh, you know, all the communication between us over the next nine years, he left me a legacy of spiritual toe sticks. And so that's why I used that theme throughout the simple faith of Mr. Rogers to show the, the spiritual lessons that I feel like he gave me before he went to heaven. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Amy Hollingsworth. She was the daughter that Mr. Rogers uh, would like to have had. The book is titled The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Amy Hollins- Hollingsworth. She's the author of A Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. She not only wrote about him, but she actually knew him and spent time and developed a relationship with him and shares uh, those insights with us in this uh, sweet book. Now, in your first chapter, you write about um, Mr. Rogers' recognition of the importance of taking time, the importance of silence. And one of the things that struck many adults was the cadence of Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. on his program, that he spoke very slowly. He gave you an opportunity to think about what was being said. How did that reflect uh, the Mr. Rogers that you knew um, off the set? Well, you know, it's interesting because that's the very first question that I asked him because I was there during um, while he was taping a series of, of episodes on fast and slow. And, and I had already decided to ask him this question, but I just I asked if that was purposeful, you know, the slowness. You know, you have the yellow caution light at the beginning of the program. And, and he just said that, you know, I said, is that deliberate, the, the, the slowness, the pace and everything? And he just said that, you know, um, he said, well, for me, I need to be myself. And then he took a long pause. <laughs> he said, I've ne- of course. And he said, I, I've never been a hyperactive run around kind of person, which actually he was describing me in that moment. But he said, I've never been a hyperactive run around kind of person. And so for me, and, and then he said, the most important thing that you, the most important gift that you can give another person is your honest self. And he said, so for me, being quiet and being slow is being myself. And that's my gift. And so, you know, over the years, and as I said, I was a hyperactive run around kind of person. I think maybe that's one of the most enduring legacies that he left me is that the opportunity to slow down and to really reflect on on life. And one thing that I've done, Georgine, that I've, I've done this since he died. But whenever I travel, whenever I stay in a hotel, I never turn the television set on. I don't turn the radio. I don't have any noise at all if I'm there for a day or for a week. And I've done that in honor to him to show him that I have that I have taken seriously his lesson that slowness and quietness are just absolutely essential and we don't have enough of it in our world today. Now, Mr. Rogers, um, 
was a man of prayer as well. Talk a bit about his views on on prayers and more importantly his practice of prayer. Right. He he would he got up at every morning at five AM and prayed. And um and people have often asked me like, how is how is it that he was able to concentrate on the person in front of him? He when you were with him, he gave you all of his attention. He was not distracted. And people said, How do you think he was able to do that? And it, it wasn't magic. You know, it, it's something he cultivated. He cultivated through his times of prayer and Bible reading this amazing I don't want to call it attention span, but this amazing ability to pay attention to the person he was with at the moment. So it sounds like a contradiction, but the truth is he he cultivated that through his times of solitude and, and silence. And and when we're silent, he believed that, you know, silence leads to reflection and reflection leads to appreciation. And then appreciation looks about for someone to thank. And so he believed that the quieter that we, we were, the more we were able to thank God for his goodness in our lives. You also write about his view on the wondrous work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, that chapter is actually about the times that we prayed for each other. There, there were, it's, it was an extraordinary thing, but there were times where I'd be going through a very difficult time in my own life, or he would be going through a difficult time, and we just sensed it because we prayed for each other every day. And 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 he had said to me, um, you know, the that the. Um, he said, I'm so convinced that the space between the television set and the viewer is holy ground, and what we put on television can, by the Holy Spirit, be translated into what the person needs to hear and see. And without that translation, he said, it's all dross as far as I'm concerned. And so he relied on the Holy Spirit every day. He said, every day when I walk into the studio, I say, dear God, let some word that is heard be yours. And so he trusted, he prayed every day, and then he asked God to translate what he said. He asked the Holy Spirit to translate what he said into what the viewer needed to hear and see. And you wouldn't believe how many testimonies have come out of his program. I include some of them Mm -hmm. in The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, but people who... People who were delivered from drug addiction and all kinds of things from watching this, from watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's, it's, it's astounding. Well, it is, but because he recognized it wasn't just what he presented in front of the screen, but the hard work that he had done before in prayer and, and preparation that ministered to people in ways that one would not necessarily directly connect to the program. Exactly, exactly. And he said sometimes people would say, you know, when you said this or did this, oh, that meant so much to me. And he said, I would look back at the script and say, I hadn't said that at all. But thankfully, because of the translation of the Holy Spirit, that person got what they needed to hear and see. And so, you know, and you're right, it's not, it's, it's, it's really important for people to know that he cultivated that. You know, that was that was a fruit of his prayer and silence and and all those things in his life. Um, he cultivated that. So what that means is it's a, it's attainable for us as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, his his example is attainable to us. His his goodness and his kindness and his reflection and his silence are all things that we too can aspire to. What do you think from your experience of walking with and getting to know um, Mr. Rogers was the most remarkable thing about him? Goodness. Um, wow. I think, I think it was his capacity 
for friendship. Um, you know, when I interviewed him, I, I, I just wrote him a thank you note, you know, as a courtesy and thought, well, that was a wonderful experience for me, but now it's over. And then, you know, we just started writing back, letters back and forth and, 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 you know, he would call and I, and I went back to visit him and I think his capacity to really, um, love and care for his neighbor is, is probably the most extraordinary thing about about him and he he has something he has something that I like to call his theology of neighbor and that is he said a neighbor is whoever you happen to be with at that moment especially if the person is in need and then once you know so okay there, that's no loopholes right <laughs> if it's whoever you happen to be with at the moment and that, then there's no loopholes and then he said once you know that everyone is your neighbor you have a choice to make and you can choose either to be an advocate or an accuser and this is what he told me I have it memorized because I say it to myself all the time and he said that that um he really believes that evil would like nothing better than to have us feel awful about who we are. And that would be back there in our minds. And we would look through those eyes at our neighbor and only see what's awful. In fact, look for what's awful. But he said, Jesus would want us to feel as good as possible about God's creation within us. And that would be in our minds. And we'd look through his eyes at our neighbor and only see what's wonderful about them. Mm. Well, once again, the book is titled The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, and it's the rest of the story. The movie, from what I understand, and you've seen it, is well done, but it doesn't tell this aspect of his character, which is perhaps the most significant part of of Fred Rogers' uh, life, what motivated him, what what moved him in the direction that he took, and really is an explanation for the significant influence that he had over many decades in, uh, in the neighborhood that he created for the nation's children. Right, and it's really his motivation, and and the film does a, a beautiful job, and they do a, they do talk actually about his faith, and they show him reading scripture, and they there, there's one scene where he's kneeling by his bedside, and he's praying. He prayed for so many people every day. He has a little book, and he's praying for people by name, and you know that touched me so deeply when I saw that scene because I know my name was in that book, and his name was in my book. You know the fact that we were able to pray for each other, and and there there's another scene in the film where his wife jo- Joanne, somebody calls him a living saint, and and Joanne said, I I don't like that term. He wasn't a perfect person, but he did things every day. He prayed, he read scriptures, he swam laps, you know, he wrote hundreds of letters, he prayed for people by name. So he had these unbelievable disciplines that just helped him to to stay grounded. Well, I so appreciate your um, telling the rest of the story and filling out some of the blanks that uh, we've wondered about. Again, the book is The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, Spiritual Insights from the World's Most Beloved Neighbor. Amy Hollingsworth, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. God bless. You too. Thank You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this is an interesting story that I think tells us everything we need to know about the age that we are living in. Well, there is no certainty about virtually anything. Now, I'm talking about the public square. The scriptures, absolutely reliable. God's character, unchanging. 
I'm so grateful for that. It helps me get out of bed every morning and walk through the day in a way that gives hope and light and, um, well, confidence in the future. But again, the culture, the world, it's another matter. Well, God said, let there be light, and there was light. We learn that in the scripture. Not to be outdone, however, three judges in California said, let bees be fish, and they were fish. Well, for all the relevant legal purposes, at least. But a remarkable superpower some judges have to redefine reality with a word or two. Now, it used to be that lawmakers would determine what the law is. They would choose the definitions and the judges would interpret the law. They're not lawmakers. They interpret law that's already been made. So how did these judges do that? Declare that bees are, in fact, fish. California has an Endangered Species Act that allows the government to give a special protection to native species of bird, mammal, fish, amphibian, reptile, or plant. That's it, the whole list. Again, bird, mammal, fish, amphibian, reptile, or plant. Now, the state legislature once considered adding insects to that list, but they decided not to. They decided Well, many decades later, environmental activist groups decided that the law should apply to several species of bumblebees, and perhaps it should. Rather than convince the legislature to add insects to the list, they decided that the quickest route was to get get what they wanted, would be to have the judges declare that bumblebees are actually fish. And as you can imagine, respect for that branch of government just skyrocketed. Or maybe not. Dutifully, the judges did just that. Now, it seems that the legislature wasn't altogether adverse to adding insects to the list. But, of course, that requires a process. These are lawmakers who represent the will of the people. Judges don't. They interpret laws that another branch of government is responsible for creating. Well, the opinion is... uh, Magnificent example of how creative judges twist language and legislative history in knots in order to avoid the plain meaning of a law. That's what they're charged with doing. Well, the statutory definition of fish includes the full panoply of marine life, including crabs and clams, sponges, starfish, even amphibians. And it identifies these creatures in terms of broad categories, wildfish, mollusk crustacean, invertebrate, amphibian or part, uh, spawn or ovum or any of these, uh, these animals. Pretty specific. Well, any normal person reading that list realizes that it applies to aquatic animals. Now, unless I'm mistaken, bees are not aquatic animals. But the environmentalists and the judges saw the word invertebrate and decided that it applies to all invertebrates of sea, earth, and air. Now, they would also have to admit that that's not what the legislature intended, or they wouldn't have taken up insects separately. Well, it didn't matter that the definition applies only to aquatic animals. It didn't matter that this um, uh, rewrite uh, makes the words mollusk and crustacean irrelevant as uh, such creatures are invertebrates. And it certainly didn't matter that laws in a constitutional republic, or as many like to refer to it, a democracy, are supposed to be written by the people or their representatives, not by judges playing word games, even if what they are suggesting is uh, a good thing. 
that the legislature might, if given another opportunity, actually agree with. But they are deprived of that opportunity. They don't want to trouble lawmakers who have to deliberate, communicate with their constituents to determine what's in the best interest of their respective constituents, and then cast votes to determine what the law will be. Well, the judges wanted to reach this outcome as a matter of policy, and they weren't going to let things like, I don't know, law, democracy, that sort of thing stand in their way. Well, this case might seem silly, but the decision matters. Contrary to what Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy once wrote, none of us are masters of the universe, free to define our own concept of existence. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that in other areas, but we'll stick with this one for the time being. Judges have even less power to do that than the rest of us. Their job is very narrow. It's to interpret the laws as written. It's the people and their elected representatives who create the law and give it meaning. A judge can ascertain its meaning, but he may not give the words his own. Well, if he does, he deprives the law of the uh, legitimate uh, the legitimacy rather of uh, the the lawmakers that uh, constitutional republic a democracy as some refer to it gives it well the constitution doesn't give the power to make laws to one person but to legislative bodies composed of elected representatives the founders designed our government in this way to bring power closer to the people Our legislators are voted on by us, and we have the power to hold them accountable for what they do. Judges, not so much. We have much less power, sometimes none at all, to hold judges accountable, and that makes judges unsuited to hold legislative power. Each time a judge strays from the meaning that the people gave to a law, the judge becomes, in essence, an illegitimate one-man legislature. And yet, it happens. By illegitimately rewriting laws under the guise of interpreting them, a judge also damages the rule of law, which is under significant threat these days. In America, the law is king. That's what Thomas Paine wrote many years ago. But if law is subject to the whims and the fancies of judges, then they are the kings. And the law is then neither supreme nor stable nor democratic. That's why it matters when judges decide bees are fish because they lack all authority, metaphorically and constitutionally, to declare it so. So when a bee is a fish, or if a bee is a fish, or if a bee is never a fish, well, the answer is, of course, they never are. There are not fish metaphorically, and they are not fish when judges usurp power to deem them so. Now, while we're talking about the definition of a bee, and of course the Uh, The decree that uh, he is considering will have uh, broad implications for landowners in the state. That's a whole nother matter. But when judges step outside the bounds of um, the strictures that they are charged with functioning under, we are all in great danger. And the casualty that we ought to be most concerned about is the rule of law. It's on life support now. But some. Something like this makes it even less certain for the future. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering. And by the way, these two guys are all up in Fish Fest. Sam's going to be taking pictures from the air and 
James is uh, overseeing a lot of the musicians and logistics and everything. So they're all over this thing. If you happen to go, and I would encourage you to consider that. That's this Saturday, by the way. Uh, you can see both uh, Sam and James. Be sure to say hello. Are you going to wear a name tag, Sam? You might wear a name tag. All right. So just look for the guy with the uh, with that thing overhead. And that will most likely be Sam. Anyway, you can find out all the important details if you don't yet have your tickets at kpdq.com. And we're talking about Fish Fest, a great lineup. The first Fish Fest in a couple of years due to the pandemic. So lots of interest coming into uh, that this weekend. And you can check it out at kpdq.com. So James Blend producing, Sam Moppin engineering, moonlighting at Fish Fest. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.